This is Monday Morning QB, June 13th, 2022. I'm Chris Bangriff-Drowns. Today on the show, as the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the Capitol holds its second hearing, what are we learning about what happened that day and why? Plus, a preview of the Poor People's Campaign Moral March on Washington. All that, and this morning... We're asking you to help keep WPFW and this program on the air with a contribution by calling 202-588-9739 or visiting us online, wpfwfm.org. We've been on the air for 46 years, commercial-free, and we'd like to stay that way with your help. 202-588-9739. We have a $500 goal to reach this hour. I know we can do it, but we need your support. 202-588-9739. Online, wpfwfm.org. The revolution will be broadcast. Stay with us. As we take to the air today... The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is in the middle of the second of at least six public hearings scheduled over the coming weeks. This comes just days after the first public hearing last week, broadcast during primetime, where committee members laid out what to expect in future hearings and made clear that they hold former President Donald Trump responsible for the violent attack. Sue Goodwin has this report. For the past year, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol has conducted more than 1,000 interviews and collected over 135,000 documents with critical information about what led to the violence that day. Last Thursday, with the first public hearing, they began to take the story to the American people. With at least 20 million people watching, it was an opportunity for the committee to describe the evidence it plans to present and to establish some of the major themes of where that evidence is leading them. One theme we heard last week was that this committee clearly holds Donald Trump responsible for the attack. This is how committee chairman and Democratic representative Benny Thompson phrased it in his opening comments. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. The violence was no accident. It represents Senate Trump's last stand, most desperate chance to halt the transfer of power. That theme was echoed by committee vice chair and Republican representative Liz Cheney, who underscored that what happened on January 6th was neither a spontaneous act nor an isolated event. On the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump's intention was to remain President of the United States despite the lawful outcome of the 2020 election and in violation of his constitutional obligation to relinquish power. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. In our hearings, you will see evidence of each element of this plan. 
Of course, at the center of that scheme is the big lie that this election was stolen from Trump. The committee promised there would be plenty about that in the next hearings and previewed what we will be hearing with video clips from depositions in which several Trump associates testified that the former president was repeatedly told that he lost and he refused over and over again to accept it. Among those associates was his own former attorney general at the time, William Barr, who called the claim of a stolen election something we can't air on the radio. I had three discussions with the president that I can recall. One was on November 23rd, one was on December 1st, and one was on December 14th. And I've been through sort of the give and take of those discussions. And in that context, I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bull. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it. And that's one of the reasons that went into me deciding to leave when I did. I observed, uh, I think it was on December 1st, that, you know, how can we, you can't live in a world where, where the incumbent administration stays in power based on its view, unsupported by specific evidence, that the election, that there was fraud in the election. That was former Attorney General William Barr. His testimony obviously found a soft spot with none other than the former president's daughter. During last week's public hearing, the select committee also showed a clip of testimony from Ivanka Trump, commenting on Bill Barr's statement that the Department of Justice found no fraud sufficient to overturn the election. How did that affect your perspective about the election when Attorney General Barr made that statement? It affected my perspective. Um, I respect Attorney General Barr. Um, so I accepted what he said was saying. Still, the big lie caught on, ultimately leading to the attack on the Capitol. Last week, we also heard new testimony on just how bloody the attack was and a promise of new evidence of how Trump resisted pleas from his staff to stop it. This again is Liz Cheney. President Trump believed his supporters at the Capitol, and I quote, were doing what they should be doing. This is what he told his staff as they pleaded with him to call off the mob, to instruct his supporters to leave. Over a series of hearings in the coming weeks, you will hear testimony, live and on video, from more than half a dozen former White House staff in the Trump administration all of whom were in the West Wing of the White House on January 6th. You will hear testimony that, quote, the president did not really want to put anything out calling off the riot or asking his supporters to leave. You will hear that President Trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. To get a sense of how this all added up, we turn to David Daly. He is a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, which helped spark the recent drive to reform gerrymandering. Daly's second book is Unrigged, 
how Americans are battling back to save democracy. He spoke to us last Monday to set up the first public hearing, and here's what he had to say after it happened. This was a ruthless and prosecutorial hearing. They brilliantly laid out a case that the President of the United States was at the center of a conspiracy to disregard the results of a free and fair election, remain in power, and disrupt the hallmark of democracy, which is that power is transferred peacefully. But as shocking as all of that is, and I do think that in many ways we've known this, right, Um, to see it laid out so clearly from inside the halls of Congress, some of the most brazen and unlawful activity that a president of the United States has ever conducted is certainly shocking. On the point of Trump's big lie, David Daly elaborated on why this is such a central part of the story. Because he has been perpetrating a big lie about election fraud really ever since the election itself. Trump made clear in 2016 and then again in 2020 that he had really little intention of accepting the results of the election. And then when he lost, he determined that he would try to stay in power, even though everyone around him, from his attorney general to his daughter, uh, told him that it was over. And, you know, in, in the words of the former attorney general, that this was BS. And he continued to lie to himself, to the American people, to his supporters, and he was effectively willing to put the Constitution of the United States into a shredder in order to retain power for himself. This is this is not somebody who went a little over the line because he really truly believed that there was fraud. This is somebody who was willing to light our system of government on fire as an autocrat and to lie to the American people about the fundamental the fundamental things that make us a free people. And he was willing to burn all of that for his own power and aggrandizement. It remains to be seen if any minds will be changed on what Trump did or didn't know going into January 6th, or even if he will be held accountable for his actions. But as David Daly points out, that is hardly our only concern, because no matter what happens to Donald Trump, his actions are rooted in a deep history that will continue to threaten American democracy if it is not confronted. I think that Trumpism is in many ways just the latest version of a very long and tragic American story about who holds power and what a shrinking white majority is willing to do to hold on to that power. 
I don't think that there are that many differences in many ways between the Reconstruction era and what happened in states after the Civil War that effectively wrote white supremacy into their constitutions once the former slaves were emancipated and in states like Florida and Louisiana and um, many others, uh, blacks became the majority. But white voters worked to enact rules that would make it impossible for them to hold political power. And this is what's at the heart in so many ways of our modern fight. In 2008, the nation elected its first black president in Barack Obama, and Republicans in, in the courts decided to take that opportunity to say that America had changed and that the protections of the Voting Rights Act were no longer necessary. And so the establishment legal Federalist Society wing effectively gutted the VRA, while at the same time, Republicans worried about what the rising Obama coalition meant. Um, and they looked and they saw an emerging multiracial America. And they realized that they had two roads to take. One would be what Republicans described in their autopsy report after the 2012 election, which is you work to appeal to those voters. You try to find a, a message that talks to them um, and you formulate policies that are winning and you go out and you work for every vote. The other strategy would be what they did instead, which is you gerrymander yourself into power in places like Texas and Georgia and North Carolina and all of these you know, changing states. You rework the rules to, to keep yourself in power. And then once in power, you continue doing that by, you know, assaulting voting rules, requiring voter ID, really, you know, doing all of these things that are that in, intentionally and disproportionately target voters who are not likely to support you. Um, and this is the ground... So this is the fertile soil that uh, Donald Trump emerged from. And so all of that is here to stay until, you know, and has been a deep part of the DNA of this country since 1619, since 1776, since 1865, since 1965. This is the latest chapter. Uh, we have never truly figured out how to turn a multiracial country into a multiracial democracy. And until we do, these battles are going to play in perpetuity. That was David Daly. He is a senior fellow for Fair Vote and author of Rat Eft, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy, and Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to save democracy. The next public hearing of the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol began today at 10 a.m., with two more scheduled for Wednesday and Thursday. They are expected to continue to focus on how Trump ignored court rulings, advice from his aides, and other government officials that his claims about a stolen election were false. 
The committee will also outline how the former president spent millions of dollars of campaign money to spread disinformation and run false ads that the election was stolen from him, which in turn provoked the January 6th riots. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodman. Poor People's Campaign, a national social justice organization, is bringing thousands of members, political representatives, union organizers, faith leaders, and social justice advocates to Washington, D.C. this week to protest for a $15 minimum wage, health care, and protection from retaliation while unionizing. Many chapters of the Poor People's Campaign are coordinating buses and carpools to the march. Here's reporter Asia Beckham with what you can expect from the group. This Saturday, June 18th, the Poor People's Campaign will rally in Washington, D.C. Attendees will include the Poor People's Campaign and its 40 state coordinating committees, as well as 170 mobilizing partners and over 20 religious and denominational bodies and a prophetic council of over 2,500 clerics. The Assembly and Moral March will be held at 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, June 18th at 3rd Street and Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. But prior to that, there will be other Poor People Campaign gatherings. At 5 p.m. Eastern Friday, June 17th, there will be a dinner for unhoused people and just blocks away from the White House at Freedom Plaza. At 7.30 p.m. that same day on Friday, there will be a memorial for all the people who died in the past two years from COVID, poverty, and war and that includes the Ukraine victims. That 7.30 p.m. Friday event will take place at Lincoln Memorial. Low-wage workers, union presidents, and progressive faith leaders held a conference last week on June 6. Here's what Bishop William J. Barber, the second co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, shared. Now, next week, we also have set up on the 15th a hearing with members of Congress We've invited both sides of the aisle. Whether they show up or not, we don't know. But we are also saying today, Mr. President, we are asking you again and your handlers to sit down with poor and low-wealth people, religious leaders, and economists next week. We've asked several times over the last few years, and the President said before he was elected that he wanted to do this and that ending poverty would be uh, not just an aspiration, but at the center of his understanding of change. We are asking again that the president sit down with impacted people from Appalachia to Alabama, from Massachusetts to Mississippi, of every race, creed, and color, and with a coalition of religious leaders and economists because, Mr. President, these are the faces and the voices that are most able to make your case when you say you want to pass living wages, when you say you want to expand health care. These are the people who are hurt the most if we don't get a handle on inflation. And these are the people that can help change the political discussions in this country from one of mere partisanship to one of principle. 
The Poor People's Campaign is demanding a meeting with President Biden as millions face rising costs and stagnant wages. In addition to hosting the press conference, Bishop Barbara and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign, recently wrote a letter to urge Biden to talk and listen to the group of poor and low-income people, explaining why prioritizing their interests is parallel to the interest to improving the nation's economy. Barbara said, and I quote, We must compel this nation to realize that since the United States is the wealthiest nation in the world, indeed in all history, that it is morally abominational that there are more than 140 million people in this country who are poor or one emergency away from economic ruin, end quote. But Barbara didn't just stop there. Why don't poor people get the same audience in the Oval Office that corporations get? That's the moral question. Workers echo the same concerns. Morgan Levy, a Starbucks barista whose Starbucks location became the first in Texas where employees voted to unionize, spoke out during the press conference. More than 100 Starbucks stores across the nation have unionized. But Levy says that's not without retaliation against organizing workers. She says while employees won their election, there's still so much that needs to be done. As happy as we are to have won our election, we're still really frustrated with corporate's blatant union busting efforts. We're angry for the Memphis 7 and almost 30 others who have been fired due to unionizing efforts. We're afraid of our stores closing, like the College Avenue store in Ithaca. Starbucks has been cutting our labor hours across the nation and threatening to take away our benefits and new summer raises if we unionize. In Buffalo alone, Starbucks has been charged with around 200 violations of labor law for retaliation, and that's just in one city right now. Um, And Starbucks is doing all this because we're asking for better pay. Partners are living paycheck to paycheck. We are poor and struggling, and most of us have to work multiple jobs to survive, including myself. We want affordable health care and seniority pay for tenured partners and more. The right to organize is a fundamental civil right, and it is shameful how vindictive Starbucks corporate has been through this process. Our slogan for the Moral March is, with Starbucks billions, Starbucks workers should not be poor people. On behalf of Starbucks workers all across the nation, we hope that President Biden will meet with Reverend Barber and the delegation from the Moral March. We know that Reverend Barber has our back, and that gives people like me and the partners at my store the hope and confidence to keep going in our fight. Thank you to Reverend Barber for supporting us, and Starbucks workers are so excited to be supporting you at the march on June 18th. This past Friday, a Starbucks in Ithaca will permanently close. Notice was given just one week prior to employees. Ithaca is the first city in history where all of its Starbucks locations are successfully unionized. The College Avenue Starbucks employees say their location is closing because of alleged retaliation against union activity. The College Avenue Starbucks workers striked on April 16 when workers raised concerns over unsafe working conditions due to an overflowing grease trap. Starbucks cited staffing and attendance issues as among the reasons for closure, per Bloomberg reports. A Starbucks attorney noted that other conditions of the store, such as grease traps, were factored into that decision to close. Now staff won't be showing up for work at all this week. Other workers spoke as well. 
Right now, I work full-time at KFC, and I have a second job at a gas station. I work 62 hours a week, seven days a week. I'm exhausted. My wages are so low that I struggle to pay my rent. I'm facing eviction every month, and my elderly father, who is also disabled, lives with me that I take care of. I know I'm not alone. A lot of people work full-time and still end up homeless in this country. Think about that. We demand that our government raise the minimum wage to at least 15. We demand that our government change the laws and make it easier for workers to form unions. Stop catering to these big corporations and give workers a chance. And we're asking President Biden to meet with low-wage workers and listen to our solutions. In 2022... 52 million people are working for less than $15 an hour, mainly in southern states. The federal minimum wage has stuck at $7.25 per hour since 2009 and at $2.13 per hour since 1991 for tip wage workers. Some states have increased minimum wage. The minimum hourly wage in California is $15 as of 2022 for all workers in a company that has more than 26 employees. Also, the state requires tip wage jobs pay the same minimum wages. Other states like Mississippi follow federal standards and have a sub-minimum tip wage of $2.13 per hour. President Biden has shown support to the Poor People's Campaign effort to put an end to poverty. On June 21st, 2021, in a two-minute video, the president said he supported some of the issues that have been raised, including the $15 minimum wage, expansion of health care benefits, protection of voting rights, and the right of workers to unionize. President Biden said, and I quote, I don't think we've ever been together at a time of such great opportunity to deliver dignity to poor and low-wage workers and make ending poverty not just aspirational, but a theory of change, end quote. Calling on Bishop Barber at one point, Biden went on to say he and Vice President Kamala Harris will keep working with you and your Poor People's Campaign to answer that clear and moral call, end quote. Barber says corporations are prioritized over people. It's about equal protection under the law for everybody. And this fundamentally wrong the violation of fundamental human and civil rights for corporations to be treated like people and people to be treated like things corporations to get everything they ask for even make money during a pandemic while people are struggling and dying the very people that we then turn around and say are essential mr president sit with these people and let's put a face on this in america during the pandemic, people in poorer counties died at a higher rate of five times higher than people in wealthier counties. Other organizers like Mary Kay Henry, president of Service Employees International, says Biden and Congress have to act hand in hand. We know that President Biden is with us, but he can't do it alone. Every member of Congress has constituents who go to bed hungry, who ration their insulin, who struggle to get care services, who can't make ends meet, even with two or three jobs. Every member of Congress has to get serious about solving these problems and putting Americans, working people, and low wealth, 
poor people ahead of tax cuts for wage thieves who literally want us to work through tornadoes. Our votes aren't a show of support. They are a demand. Similarly, Reverend Barbara has called other politicians out, too, saying that Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell are standing in the way of a $15 minimum wage, as well as a sweeping election reform and voting rights bills. The other co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Theo Harris, said the refusal of the right-wing Democrat Senator Joe Manchin and Senate Republicans to extend the child tax credit has caused millions of children to go without food. That decision to refuse the aid coincides with Congress's approval of billions of dollars in weapons shipments to Ukraine. In early May, nearly 45% of parents surveyed by Parents Together Action reported that they have skipped meals so that their children would have enough to eat. About 10% of the 500 respondents said both they and their children skipped meals since the $300 per child tax credit payments ended. Months after the child tax credit wasn't extended, nearly half of the families that received it are struggling to just feed their families in a nation that throws out more food than it takes to feed everyone. The people who will be impacted the most from the overturning of Roe will be poor and low-income women and their communities. The communities that have seen the recent attacks and violence, including Buffalo and Evalde and all over, were already struggling under the weight of poverty and inequality. And war and militarism is an enemy of the poor here in this country and across the world. So as Bishop Barber was saying, we must reject these lies. We must reject the lie that this current economic downturn or, or the shortages of supplies or any of the problems we're seeing right now is because of raised wages or investment in social programs. Instead, we must know and say the truth that these problems are caused by inequality by the funneling of profits and resources into a very few hands, caused by the greed of corporations and the well-off. You'll hear that voice and so many others during the Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers Assembly and more March on Washington this Saturday. Here's some of the sounds you will hear at the protests while the group marches with picket signs. This song was created by the Poor People's Campaign. So I'll call to you, somebody's hurting my brother, and it's gone on, and your response is, far too long. Yes, it's gone on. Far too long. It's gone on. Far too long. Somebody's hurting my brother, and it's gone on. Far too long. Now the end is, and we won't be silent anymore. We'll say that together. And, and we won't be silent anymore. Okay? And so we'll try the rehearsal version, which goes... Oh, somebody's hurting my brother, and it's gone on far too long. Yes, it's gone on far too long. I tell you, it's gone on far too long. Oh, somebody's hurting my brother, and it's gone on far too long. Together, and we won't be silent. 
interested in joining the Poor People's Campaign March, here's a little background info about the group. It launched in 2018 with a historic wave of nonviolent civil disobedience. The Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival is a national campaign to address interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, and denial of health care militarism, and war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. The group brings together the nation's 140 million poor and low-income people across race, ability, religion, gender, sexual orientations, and issues alongside faith leaders, organized labor advocates, and activists. To learn more, visit www poorpeoplescampaign.org. That site sends a message of solidarity with low-income and poor people. It says, we rise together because, number one, we rise together to demand that the 140 million poor and low-income people in our nation, from every race, creed, color, sexuality, and place are no longer ignored, dismissed, or pushed to the margin of our political and social agenda. Second, we will rise not as left or right, Democrat or Republican, but as a more fusion movement to build power, build moral activism, build voter participation, and we will not be silent anymore. Third, 
we will rise to change the moral narrative and demand that the interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, militarism, and distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism all be ended. Fourth, we will rise to the challenge, the lie of scarcity and the myth of abundance. Fifth, and lastly, we will rise to lift the voices and faces of poor and low-income Americans and their moral allies with a new vision of love, justice, and truth for America that says poverty can be abolished and change can come. This is Asia Backham for WPFW Radio. All right, and we're back. This is Chris Bangert-Drowns here with my colleague Sue Goodwin to talk briefly about some of the logistics for the upcoming Poor People's March, which WPFW is a uh, media partner for. Um, Sue, there's a number of things we need to talk about. First, what's going on with transportation? How, how can folks get out to um, this uh, moral march? Okay, and uh, let me say, I am pulling all this information from the website poorpeoplescampaign.org so you can go there as well and see for yourself but what we learned there first of all they are partnering with the company called rally.co to get buses to washington and if you go to their website they'll provide you a link to uh, rally.co if you need to still try to get a bus into town if you're driving, they're encouraging people to park at a metro station outside of Washington, D.C., because trust me, you're not going to find a parking place <laughs> in town. But it's a fun metro, so from there you take the metro on into Union Station, okay? And from there you're going to go to the National Mall. The rally begins at 10 a.m. Uh, another really exciting thing at the website is they have a fantastic social media kit, which you can use whether you're going or you're not. They've got posters. They have every type of uh, feature you would want to include in your own social media account to promote this event and this cause. So please go there and use the tools that they have put together really, really beautifully. Um, what Chris, about- I can tell you what's happening Friday night. Sure, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, there are two events Friday night, which I really hope I can make it to. These sound amazing. First of all, everyone has a right to live communal dinner. That's going to be June 17th, 5 p.m. at Freedom Plaza. That's at 13th and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest. And it's a special community meal and time of fellowship, as they say on their website, on the eve of the Mass Poor and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington. So that's Friday night at 5 p.m. And then also Friday night at 7.30 p.m., there's going to be a national memorial service at the Lincoln Memorial. And they will be, as it says on their website, they're inviting us to join in mourning the loss of over 1 million lives to COVID-19. And as they also say, many more we have lost to the interlocking injustice of poverty racism, militarism, ecological devastation, and Christian nationalism. So that's a national memorial service Friday night at 7.30 p.m. at the Lincoln Memorial. And what should uh, listeners who want to show, uh, to attend know about uh, food and water? 
Okay. Uh, first of all, they are really, uh, they are very aware. Um, excuse me, I uh, drew away from the mic there for a minute. Um, as they say on their website, in an effort to create an event that is uh, free of single-use plastics, they will have large water tanks and encourage folks to bring reusable water bottles if you must bring a water bottle. Sure. So leave the throwaway plastic at home. Uh, also, marshals will be on hand. They'll be wearing neon-colored marshal vests. So if you need any assistance at all, look for the neon vest, and people there will help. Uh, it's a very – they're trying to be as accessible as they can. They will have ASL and Spanish interpretation captioning on the live stream, uh, video description services for visually impaired, and there also will be escorts for anyone who needs assistance. And we should say, too, as far as food goes, folks should pack their own lunches. There will be limited food there, but um, we don't want to expect that they will be able to feed everybody. So do, do bring food and snacks for yourself and for uh, fellow uh, attendees. Um, we certainly don't want you going hungry there. Um, it should be a, an exciting uh, long day of, of uh, campaigning. Um, anything else left to add there, Sue? I think it's covered it. Sure. So for our last word, we're going to return to Poor People Campaign Leader, Reverend William Barber II, who has appeared frequently on this program over the last four years. In September 2020, just two months before the pivotal presidential election, Barber spoke with News Director Askia Mohammed to articulate the political power, both actual and potential, of poor people. As it turns out, the Poor People's Campaign's work to mobilize low-wealth people for the election could have played a pivotal role in denying Donald Trump a second term. Here, Barber describes the importance of that mobilization. Poor and low-wealth people are already awake. I, we, we have been organized for three years. We have now 43 coordinating committees and 40, 46 coordinating committees in the District of Columbia. 2018, we had more than 50,000 people participate in six weeks of action when we launched this campaign. Over 5,000 people in 41 uh, state capitals did civil disobedience, demanding that their governors and state legislatures take up this issue, as well as in the Senate. We had a Congress in 2019, over 1,500 delegates from around the country, along with moral leaders, came. All 10 of the then-presidential candidates came, and all of them promised that if they were uh, they, they were, as they were running, they would lift poverty to the fore. They would not make it a marginal issue. We wrote a budget and presented it before the, um, budget committee of the United States House of Representatives. And many have said if our budget had been passed, if some of the issues have been dealt with, we wouldn't be facing the things we're facing in the midst of COVID now. In the midst of COVID, it has shown us that poor and low wealth people are so much the backbone of essential workers. 62 million people work every day without a living wage before COVID. Uh, 700 people are dying a day from poverty before COVID. Now with COVID, over 1,000 people dying. And epidemiologists tell us that uh, this virus is, is has so much power because it's exploiting the fissures of poverty and racism, systemic racism and systemic poverty. And we watched, people watched uh, the CARES bill be passed. Over 80% of the money went to banks and corporations. Many people are now have lost their jobs. It is said that 40% of jobs making $40,000 a year will be gone. So we have a lot of people in the ranks of the new poor. As poor is not just somebody who's homeless uh, on the street, but people who may have a home, but they're $400 away from economic disaster. We have now 30 million people in unemployment. We have 
uh, uh, 30 million people facing eviction. And we have another 27 million people on top of the 87 million people before COVID that were uninsured and underinsured, 27 million people now uninsured. So this moment is, 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 is showing that poverty and low wealth is, are matters of national security. Uh, that the people we call essential workers are mostly poor, low wealth workers who we have not, whom we have not given the essentials they need. As one lady said, I feel like I'm going to my own mass murder every morning and I, they call me a hero and I feel like a zero. But those, that same group is saying no more, no more. We, we are going to do more. We're going to bring to bear the power of poor and low wealth people in this election. It's the only place you can expand the electorate. It's the only way you can change the South. And until we change the South, extremists like Donald Trump will always have 193 electoral vote head start. From Maryland to Texas, that's 193 electoral votes head start. We cannot have a democracy where you leave uh, that many states off the table. And in those states right now, if you organize poor, low-wealth black people, white people, and brown people, they can fundamentally shift the uh, electorate. One-third of all poor people live in the South. One-third of all white people live in the South. Too often, Republicans racialize poverty and Democrats run for poverty. People have decided no more. Uh, and so poor people are saying there are five interlocking injustices. Systemic racism in all of its forms, systemic poverty, uh, ecological devastation, denial of health care, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism that have to be dressed as in, addressed as interlocking injustices. And in the South, finally, many are saying we're not going to fall anymore for what Dr. King called the aristocracy and the bourbon class, sowing division upon black, among black and white poor people. Uh, uh, anytime black and white poor people had the, have the power to, to fundamentally come together and create a new political reality. Dr. King said that in 65 at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march. We're just, we've decided we're going to live out what he said and organize and build power all across the nation. Put that back up, please. There's still time to support this program by calling 202-588-9739, 1-800-222-9739. You can go online, wpfwfm.org, or on Cash App, dollar sign WPFW. There's still a few minutes left here. We know we can reach our goal this morning. Uh, we do have a generous contribution from Robert and Diana Bangert-Drowns from Albany, New York, who happen to be my parents. So I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to challenge listeners to join my extended family and uh, please give a donation to support this news station, uh, this news team. We've been on the air for four years now, um, making bricks out of straw, as our uh, news director, Askia Muhammad, would always say. We need your support to make these bricks, 202 9739 one 739 online at wpfwfm.org or cash app dollar sign wpfw we do have gifts to give you but we are all the time every single second on the air giving you the gift of this radio station wpfw uh is building a better better world one broadcast at a time the theme for our pledge drive this year this uh summer is the revolution will be broadcast wpfw is a revolutionary outlet it's a community outlet but we need your support to stay on the air 202 
That's our show for today. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Continue to rest gracefully, Eskia. And thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. Thank you.